You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. My guest today is Richard Dawkins, and of all the people who I've whom I've had the privilege to interview on this podcast, today's guest is the person who I have admired the most and for the longest time. My own background is in the arts. I have no um, formal background in science at all, and I didn't really discover um, how how enjoyable, how enlightening um, it could be to read to read books about science until um, 1991, when I was in my early 20s, when I read um, Richard's book, um, The Selfish Gene, and it blew my mind. And after that, I read um, all of his other books that had been published at that time, and that bega- began... Um, uh, a habit that I've I've kept since, an enthusiasm I've kept since, which is read reading um, science books and reading about science. It was his books that led me to the discovery of how wonderful that could be. Thank you so much, Richard, for joining me today. That's very nice to hear. Thank you very much. I'm going to begin by reading a passage because I would like uh, anyone who isn't already familiar with your writing to get a sense of um, how captivating it can be. Uh, This passage is from a piece taken from the latest collection, which is called Books Do Furnish a Life. And it is a passage that you suggest as an epitaph to be read at your, as, as an address to be read at your funeral. Imagine a spaceship full of sleeping explorers, deep frozen would be colonists of some distant world. Perhaps the ship is on a forlorn mission to save the species before an unstoppable comet, like the one that killed the dinosaurs, hits the home planet. The voyagers go into the deep freeze, soberly reckoning the odds against their spaceship, ever chancing upon a planet friendly to life. One in a million planets is suitable at best, and it takes centuries to travel from each star to the next. The spaceship is pathetically unlikely to find a tolerable, let alone safe haven for its sleeping cargo. But imagine that the ship's robot pilot turns out to be unthinkably lucky. After millions of years, the ship has the extraordinary luck to happen upon a planet capable of sustaining life, a planet of equable nature, bathed in warm starshine, refreshed by oxygen and water. The passengers, Rip Van Winkles, wake stumbling into the light. After a million years of sleep, Here is a whole new fertile globe, a lush planet of warm pastures, sparkling streams and waterfalls, a world bountiful with creatures darting through alien green felicity. Our travellers walk entranced, stupefied, unable to believe their unaccustomed senses or their luck. I am lucky to be alive, and so are you, privileged, and not just privileged to enjoy our planet. More, we are granted the opportunity to understand why our eyes are open, 
and why they see what they do in the short time before they close forever. So Richard, you have said before that we, um, you've, you believe that more people should and um, would be able to enjoy science in the same way as we enjoy music, literature, or art. What do you feel non-scientists can specifically gain from an understanding of science in terms of the kinds of pleasures it can bring, um, those, those kinds of pleasures that are analogous to appreciation of art? Difficult question to answer. By the way, you read that beautifully. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, my um, pleasure. I think that um, science is, what science can tell us, especially we who live at the time that we do, what science can tell us is so wonderful, so amazing, so exhilarating. Uh, We are close to an understanding of why we're here, what it's all about, what life is for. We're close to an understanding, perhaps not so close to an understanding of how the universe came into being but we understand a great deal about the universe. And it is beautiful. It's amazing. And um, I sort of feel that artists and poets haven't really done justice to the how amazing science is and what science can tell us. So I do believe that science ought to be a subject for great literature, great art, maybe even great music. Mm. Yes, I... I um... You said once that you are, you feel that uh, Carl Sagan would have been a good candidate for the Nobel Prize for Literature. Yes, I, I think that if you look at, at I mean, obviously scientists win the Nobel Prize for physics and physiology and chemistry, but why not literature? Why wouldn't somebody like Carl Sagan or Peter Atkins, uh, Jacob Bronowski, uh, all of whom are mentioned in Books to Furnish a Life and, and quoted, uh, why wouldn't one of those deserve the Nobel Prize for Literature. The only approach to a scientist who's ever won the prize for literature is Henri Bergson. And that's a terrible precedent because he was rather mystical rather more Mm. than scientific. Mm. You've said also more than than the fact that when scientists write more eloquently and more clearly, it's clearly more enjoyable to read and... um, more accessible to the general public. But you have also said that you feel that um, writing more clearly um, makes it possible to do, uh, often makes it possible to do better science. I'm going to quote a passage here, which is again, is from the Books Do Furnish a Life collection. I feel I have a mission to persuade my scientific colleagues to write their signs as if they had a lay person looking over their shoulder, not to write in a language which is completely opaque to other people. I believe they'll do better science if they do that, and I think they'll communicate with other scientists better if they do that. I even think they'll understand better the science that they themselves are doing. It's one of the very surprising and I think uh, un- really unusual things about your work is that it's not just science explanation in a, in the sense of um, you had already done the science or other people had done the science and you are now explaining to the layperson what that science is about. But in the course of some of your books, and I'm thinking particularly of the extended phenotype and the selfish gene, it's 
you allow the readers to eavesdrop on you actually doing the science. So it's addressed both to scientific colleagues and to lay readers. Can you say more about the kinds of possibilities that 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 opens up and um, why that is a particularly oh why that how and why that can be a particularly good way of actually doing science? It's an aspiration of mine to do that and to encourage other scientists to do it. Uh, it's not always easy, and I, I don't envy, for example, modern physicists who have a quite extraordinarily difficult subject to convey. It would be very hard to expect them to write their research papers, theoretical physicists, for example, to write their research papers in a way that would be understandable by lay people. They could perhaps make a, a bit more of an effort. Biologists, pe- people in my own field, I feel would actually, it should be a lot easier to do that. And you're right that I do think that they might actually, we scientists might actually understand what we're doing ourselves better if we explain it in a way which is intelligible to, non, to non-scientists. When I was editor of a scientific journal, Animal Behavior, I tried to encourage authors to depart from the standard format of a scientific paper, which begins with introduction, and then goes methods, and then results, and then discussion or conclusion. And it's a boring, uh, stereotyped way of writing a paper. I think you should be able to write a scientific paper as a story, as something about what the experiments you did, why you did them. Perhaps there's a sequence of experiments. Experiment one had a question, began with a question. You did the experiment, you got a result. That prompted a new question, which led to experiment two, which prompted a new question, which led to experiment three, and so on. So if you have a paper that describes four experiments, it should be in that form as a, as a narrative flow from one experiment to the next, instead of which, what you often see in such a scientific paper is methods one, methods two, methods three, methods four, results one, results two, results three, results four, totally losing the narrative flow which would grip the reader and help the reader to understand what's going on, why the experiments were done. That's a rather mundane example. But um, I think in general, if you do write your scientific papers with a view to a layperson looking over your shoulder, not only will you enjoy writing it more, you will, they'll obviously enjoy reading it more, but also I think you really may understand yourself what you're doing better than you would if you wrote it in the standard scientific jargony way. Mm. Yeah, I recently interviewed um, Eric Howell, who is a, a neuroscientist and also a novelist. And he said that he feels that in neuroscience, for example, it's very easy to play the neuroscience game, which is we put these subjects into the uh, fMRI machine and we measured a difference in, we measured increased blood flow to this region of the brain. And it's very easy to kind of, to stop there and to say, well, this is the meaningful, this is the result. Um, and it seems a little bit like, um, he describes it, you know, uses the old analogy of the drunkard who is looking for his keys under the lantern, because that's where the light yes. is. <laughs> um, 
it yes. can allow you to avoid asking the larger question of um, why would an increase in blood flow? Why would this? Um, why would these correlates suggest? Um, what do they tell us about what is going on, and why are we looking in this specific place? Yes, exactly. I remember when, once when I was a graduate student and I went and visited uh, my colleagues in Cambridge, uh, these sort of opposite numbers, and I met one of, my, one of the Cambridge graduate students, sort of contemporary of mine, and he was supposed to be telling me what he did. And he began, what I do is, whereas he should have begun, my question, what I wanted to know is, was the question I wanted to ask is, and that's why I did these these experiments, instead of which he's, he began by saying, what I do is. So that's, a, that's just a little illustration of what you're saying. Mm. Um, you talk, I mean, you, a lot of your writing is finding um, very, uh, very pertinent and uh, illuminating analogies, um, which not only sort of explain ideas, but actually present things from a different viewpoint, which opens up new questions and new explanations. You you talk about um, the whole enterprise of science as being a kind of analogy. It's about explaining complex things in terms of the interactions between simpler things. And a few of the analogies that you use, which I have found particularly, which I think are particularly illustrative, and perhaps you could... Um, go over them for our listeners. Um, the first, uh, the one that I found particularly fascinating um, recently was your idea of con um, continuously updated virtual reality, um, that animals model their environments and they reflect an adaptation to their environments, but not only their current outer environments and their ancestral environments, but also their internal environments, i.e. the internal models that they have of the world. Um, could you say more about this notion of continuously updated virtual reality? Yes. I think if you'd look at, uh, for example, um, visual illusions, uh, you, you know, there are various famous visual illusions like the Necker cube and like the Muller-Lyer illusion and things. What these suggest is that what the brain is doing is setting up models in the head which are um, bear some relation to the outside reality. But nevertheless, what you're actually looking at uh, when you look at a box or something like that is a, an internal model, a, a constructed internal model. And when I say updated, uh, it's not just a pure fantasy like a dream, although dreams are also internal models. When we're out in the real waking world, these internal models are updated by sense data coming in all the time. So it's rather like virtual reality. Uh, when you don a pair of goggles for virtual reality and the computer presents to you uh, a vision of, as it might be, an ancient Greek temple, and every time you turn your head, you get the illusion that you're moving your head round to the left in this Greek temple. You see what's on the left in, the, in this imaginary Greek temple. It could be a Martian landscape or it could be anything you like. It could be an underwater scene. It's constructed in the computer. It's virtual reality. And it's updated as you, as you move your head. 
I think that that's sort of what's going on anyway. We are, uh, our brain constructs a virtual reality which is updated by what's coming in through the eyes and ears and other senses. And I think that makes sense of how we navigate through the world. Mm. Yeah. A related thing is the idea of the genetic book of the dead. So the idea that the animal, um, if a, if a, a talented zoologist is confronted by an animal body, um, the zoologist can draw conclusions about the animal's environment. For example, if the animal has dappled fur, the zoologist can conclude that that animal or the animal's ancestors lived in a forest environment with dappled light and shade. Uh, could you say more about that idea, the genetic book of the dead? Yes, the genetic book of the dead is one of my favorite themes. And I'm, I'm even starting to write a book called The Genetic Book of the Dead. As you say, if a deer has a dappled uh, fur pattern, suggesting um, um, the, the dappled sunlight pattern, or if a frog has, has a pattern of bark on its back, a, a stick insect looks like a stick, looks exactly like a stick, even down to the minute detail. This is a particular case where the animal was literally has its environment painted on its back. That's an extreme case of the genetic book of the dead. But I wanted to generalize that to say that right through the warp and woof of the animal, right through the animal, everything about it can be thought of as a kind of description of the environments in which its ancestors lived. This follows from natural selection, the power of natural selection to shape an animal to fit into the environment of its ancestors, of course, because that's where the selection took place. So in those cases where the animal has its background uh, painted on its back, has the, the bark of the tree, the grass where it lives, whatever it is, the dappled forest sunlight painted on its back, that's an extreme case. But right through the biochemistry of the animal, the physiology of the animal, the internal anatomy of the animal, everything about it is a kind of description of the worlds in which its ancestors survived. And as you said, a talented zoologist, a knowledgeable zoologist presented with the body of an animal should be able to reconstruct the set of environments in which the animal's ancestors lived. Now, it's a complicated palimpsest of different periods because, of course, the ancestors lived through, well, hundreds of millions of years of the past. And you have to think about which parts of that, those ancestral environments receive the heaviest weighting? And it's tempting to say that the, the, the later parts do. The, the, the most recent ancestral environments are the ones that are imprinted most heavily on the animal. But that's not necessarily obviously true. And biochemists have sort of speculated on the idea that you could say that, the, that the, our blood, our salty blood, is a kind of relic of ancestral seas, which were, uh, which were salty, perhaps a bit, a bit less salty than today's are. Um, so the, the genetic book of the dead is a, is a picture of the animal as a, a model, a description of the environments in which its ancestors lived, both ancient environments and modern environments, superimposed upon one another as a palimpsest. Mm. I think the other, I mean, the third of the ideas that 
I think are particularly good examples or um, the particularly good examples that I can think of now for that way of arguing by analogy is the um, is your idea of the extended phenotype. And in that book, um, you talk about various ways in which animals change their environments um, in such a way that the genes that prompt that behavior, it increases the uh, likelihood of survival of the genes that prompt that behavior. So for example, the, at, a very, at the simplest level, uh, when caddisfly larvae are making their, um, their uh, little um, brick uh, um, shelters, um, shells, I'm not sure what to call them, um, that that behavior increases, having a gene that, that prompts that behavior increases the chance of survival of the caddisfly and therefore the survivability of the gene prompting that behavior. Um, are there some clear examples of how that happens at the human level? I mean, clearly we have transformed our environment a lot, um, but are there specific ways in which we can see humans transforming their environment in such a way as to increase the survivability odds of the genes for that behavior? I would prefer to say no. Uh, you talked about the caddis larva. The caddis larva builds a house out of stones or sticks or snail shells or little bits of bits of vegetation. And the house serves exactly the same function as, for example, the shell of a snail, or indeed the, the skin of any animal. It's, a, it's protect, protective, and it's quite a hard protection in the case of a stone house. The caddis has beautiful behavior patterns where it picks up little bits of, of stone, little min, miniature pebbles, and glues them into place, literally glues them like, like a, a, a mason with mortar building this little house. Now, the house, the outer shell of the caddis larva is made of stone, it's not made of body in the normal sense. It's not made of skin. It's not made of hair. It's not made of even a snail shell. But nevertheless, it is phenotype. It's part of the phenotype which the genes of the caddis manifest as. So the extended phenotype is generalizing the principle of the phenotype, that which helps a gene to survive, the color of your eyes, the, the shape of your nose, the length of your legs, all these things are part of your phenotype which may uh, assist the survival of the genes which uh, influence the shape of your nose or the length of your legs, etc. Now, the caddis house, although it's made of stone, is clearly a proper phenotype in the same kind of way as a snail shell is or a crab shell is. It's just that it's not made of living tissue or it's not made in the same way as 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 a snail shell is, from living tissue. It's made by external stones. A bird's nest is another example of an extended phenotype. So the idea of the extended phenotype is that you, when you talk about phenotype, you're talking about any influence which genes have upon the world, whether or not they have that effect directly on the body of the animal concerned. In the case of the caddis larva or the bird's nest, it works via the building behavior of the individual animal. But the end result is 
phenotype in the same sort of sense as a crab shell is phenotype. Now, when you come to humans, something like a building, it's designed by an architect. But I don't think you'd want to say that gene differences, differences between architects in their genes are reflected in differences in buildings. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. There's no gene for making uh, skyscrapers as opposed to low-rise buildings. There may be genes that influence how talented an architect is as in the profession of architecture, but I don't think you could say that the actual phenotype, the, um, the building, whatever it is, is a proper reflection of variation in genes. Uh, yes, well, um, I think I've probably pretty much finished talking about why you don't want to talk about extended phenotypes with humans. Mm-hmm. Changing topic a little bit, um, you have said that you are all for rom- romantic love and poetry and the emotions that lie so close to what makes life worth living. Um, and that is is a mistake to think of those things as irrational. Those are are things that are tangential to rationality rather than orthogonal to it. Um, and they're very different from irrational beliefs and superstitions. Could you tell tell me a little bit about um a, your favorite um uh your favorite writers of fiction or poetry? Um who has most influenced uh your work and what role has um art played in your life? Yes. Um, well, I suppose my favourite poets are A. E. Hausman, uh, W. B. Yeats, Rupert Brooke, um, Shakespeare. Uh, I have been um, sort of a bit disturbed by people who think that a scientific view of life somehow precludes emotion and the things that go with emotion. Uh, I believe we can be rational about why we have emotions. I believe that, I mean, well, for, for example, um, after The Selfish Gene was published, I had a number of letters from people saying that uh, they were sort of driven to despair by the thought that uh, the, the world was a cold, hard, rational, unemotional place with no no, no room for emotion, no room for love, no room for passion. That seems to me to be totally and completely wrong. Uh, one teacher, I think it was a professor from Canada, I believe it was, said that a young woman, a student had come to him and said that she'd read The Selfish Gene and was, and was almost driven to suicide. And he advised her not to show the book to any of her friends. Um, this is so utterly misguided. I mean, of course we have emotions, of course we have passions, of course we fall in love. That's all part of our biology. And no doubt, ultimately, it is susceptible of a rational scientific explanation. But that's not what we do when we actually fall in love. We don't think to ourselves in a rational way about the neuronal pathways, the hormonal pathways that are being activated. Uh, we just fall in love. Or we, we weep in the present when, when we hear a, a Schubert Quartet, or, or, or read a Shakespeare sonnet. Um, so there's, there's really no, no problem with reconciling a, being a rational scientist with being an, an, an emotional poet. Mm. There seems to me often to be this misconception that the genes I view, which is um, 
you know, a, a startlingly illuminating um, way of understanding what is happening um, in evolutionary terms. But that is therefore somehow the real truth about people um, that um, that their their other thoughts and feelings and impulses are some kind of superficial froth or some sort of mendacious excuse making over the top and the real truth is um uh is is just about genes uh relative survivability and um that's a that's an extraordinarily odd way of looking at things um to me would you agree yes i would i agree very much um and uh really I, I can't answer that much in, m- more different than, than I already have. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of the same point, really. really. Um, I, I recognize that if I fall in love, uh, it or if 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 I feel sexual passion, say, um, in some sense, this is this is my brain being driven by my evolved genes. But the connection is so is so indirect and so so long drawn out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the causal chain is so uh, elusive that uh, it doesn't really help you. It doesn't really ex- ex- help you to explain what's going on when you have a feeling of passion, a feeling of deep emotion. You have them anyway. Mm. Yes. It reminds me of, I can't remember which scientist it was who who made this joke. Um, he asked her, um, have you met my, my wife? And um, the other scientist said, Ah uh, yes, I've met your wife. She is a collection of quarks and electrons. That you know, at one level that's true, but at another level, it's um, it's quite irrelevant to our our normal way of experiencing life, relationships, and interactions. Of course, absolutely. You have said that if you could, um, that in in a review of Jerry Coyne's book, "Why Evolution Is True." You said that the molecular genetics revolution would have taken Darwin's breath away. Um, could you say more about if you could resurrect um, Charles Darwin and talk to him today? What advi- What would you? Um, what would you be most keen to tell him? And what advances in evolutionary biology do you think would most surprise and delight him? I suppose I'd first congratulate him on being so far-sighted as he was. Mm. What he really got wrong was genetics, and that's the big one. Um, and he would have been fascinated. He would have been spellbound, I think, by molecular genetics. Actually, he would have been pretty keen on Mendelian genetics long before it became molecular because mm. it's digital. Uh, Mendelian genetics is digital, and um, Watson-Crick genetics is is very, very digital, just, just like c- computers. Mendelian genetics is digital in the sense that genes are all or none, and you get a particular set of genes from your mother, a particular set of genes from your father, and of those genes, you pass on a particular subset to each of your children. They pass through you unchanged on their way through. They are uh, unbreakable digits. And uh, that would have been the answer to quite a lot of the problems that Darwin had, a lot of the problems that led Darwin to revise the origin of species, such that the, the sixth edition is uh, actually not so, not so scientifically accurate as the first edition, because Darwin was obliged to make changes in the sixth edition because he misunderstood 
he didn't he didn't know about genetics and and he would have been rescued in the criticism that the first edition faced if he had known about mendelian digital genetics so that's one point but then when we come to watson crick genetics where it is superbly preternaturally digital it's just like computer data it's it's quaternary rather than binary but apart from that it is computer data a, a, a chromosome is like a great big computer tape uh, and that is beautiful that is elegant and i think darwin would have loved it and i think with hindsight we could say that evolution really needs genetics to be digital so i'd stick my neck out and say that if there is life elsewhere in the universe however weird and strange and alien and foreign it may be one thing we can say is that it will be darwinian life and it will have digital genetics albeit in detail no doubt very different from ours what do you think is the most common and persistent misunderstanding of your work or evolution or evolutionary biology evolution in general i suppose um miss a consistent misunderstanding is that uh it that the that the mere demonstration that something is complicated and looks designed somehow uh makes evolution less likely uh when something is complicated and looks designed like an eye or a knee joint or a heart or a kidney or a leaf then the challenge is how do we explain that and darwinian natural selection evolution by natural selection is the only way the only feasible way that has ever been proposed to explain that so uh, the common misunderstanding among creationists is that if you've demonstrated that something is highly improbable and there is a sense in which things like eyes and kidneys are highly improbable that that in itself is evidence for a divine creator whereas what it is is it's evidence for that we need some kind of special explanation and a divine creator is not a special explanation because it presupposes what you're trying to explain uh which is co- a, a complex design in this case whereas it, evolution by natural selection does explain it So that's a very common misunderstanding. A very common uh, misunderstanding of evolution is that because we're missing the point about how long geological time offers, the great stretches of time that geological time allows. Um and therefore people say things like well I believe in evolution when I see a monkey give birth to a human that sort of is not realizing that it takes uh, millions of generations for that sort of change to to happen. Um as a misunderstandings of my work i suppose uh many people think that i'm that the selfish gene at least is advocating the idea that uh we are all selfish or we ought to be selfish which is the exact opposite mm-hmm. of what i'm actually saying genes are selfish but that means that individuals cannot be selfish or may not be selfish um another misunderstanding is that i'm advocating a sort of genetic determinism such that there's you're you're stuck with your genes and if your genes tell you to do something there's nothing you can do about it there's no possibility of being educated away from whatever innate tendencies your genes may have built into you that's another very common misunderstanding mm-hmm. and you've said that we we defy our genes every time we use a condom for example yes absolutely and that that's a model for 
any kind of, of def- defiance. I mean, we defy our genes all the time when we spend our time writing books instead of rushing out and procreating. Yes. And I know that you have also said that um, you feel that although you are Darwinian in science, when it comes to ethics, you are an anti-Darwinian. Um, could you say more about that distinction? Yes, I've, I've often said that. Um, I, I think that, that if, if you base your morals or your politics, uh, your belief about what society should consist of, you imagine it to be a Darwinian world. It would be a very unpleasant world. And I think the, the, the rather hackneyed phrase, nature read in tooth and claw, is accurate. That is nature. And the beauty of being human is that we have the power to depart from that. T.H. Huxley said this uh, in the 19th century. Um, nature is not pleasant. Uh, nature is ruthless. Nature is fierce and uh, read in tooth and claw. So do not base your politics on Darwinism. On the contrary, learn your Darwinism as a key to understanding how not to organize society, how not to organize your politics. Absolutely. And what do you see as the, as the threats to the understanding of science today? Um, what do you see as the new, more recent challenges, if, if you think that there are new challenges and what is your best advice for how to um, how to try to counter them? The challenge from religion hasn't gone away. Uh, it's still there. But um, I've written enough about that. I, mean, I think there are, are new challenges coming from a sort of trendy philosophy, which possibly originated in France, mm. um, became fashionable in Britain and America, whereby uh, this philosophy in a rather incoherent way casts doubt upon science, on rationality, uh, on the idea that there is a real world which science is equipped to elucidate. Uh, It sort of goes with the kind of idea that um, your truth is yours and you're entitled to your truth and evidence doesn't come into it or you can, you can despise evidence, you can reject evidence, you can say I have my own truth and scientific evidence has nothing to do with it. Uh, in extreme cases, it really does look like a, a mistrust of scientific evidence. Uh, I think you probably know more about this than I do, but I, I think there is a tendency for uh, people like me to have concentrated too much on religion as the enemy of science and not realize that there may be a new enemy of science rearing its head. Yeah, yeah. Richard, is there anything that you would have liked to have talked about in this interview, which I haven't given you a chance to talk about? Well, I suppose uh, I could say a little bit about Books to Furnish a Life. You, and many yes, please do. arose out of it, but I could say a little bit about it. I mean, it is a collection. It's, it's the third, really, of my collections of, of previously published essays. Um, the Devil's Disciple was the first one. Sorry, um, uh, um, uh, I've forgotten, forgotten the title of it. Um, a Devil's Chaplain. I like that in uncertainty on my part. A Devil's Chaplain was the first one. And then the second one was um, Science in the Soul, which was much more recent. And um, when Gillian Summerscales and I were working on Science in the Soul, we realized that we had uh, too much material 
So we split it into two. And the obvious way to split it was to have those essays which were to do with books, book reviews, forwards to books, afterwards to books, essays about books, uh, could be a separate volume. And that's what this is. That's why it's called Books to Furnish a Life. So it's, sort of, as it were, my life with books, scientific books mostly, but not entirely. And um, so it's a, co a co collection of miscellaneous book reviews, etc., about books, um, divided into sections by the editor, Gillian Summerskills, with whom I work very closely. Yes, it's very. Um, it's a. It's a very generous characteristic of of your work in general that um, a, a surprising amount of of your published work is recommendations of other people's books and other people's works and praise of other scientists, um, which is is something that I found very delightful. But. You also do a a, a wonderful um, and I think perhaps underappreciated line in satire, um, and I'd actually like to read another little passage um, to contrast with a rather more emotive passage that I read earlier, um, and it's from your review of Michael J. Behe's book, *The Edge of Evolution*. Right, um, and. Behe suggests that mutate that evolutionary change is limited by the number of naturally occurring mutations, and I'm going to I'm going to read now. Um, now, if you sought an experimental test of Behe's theory, what would you do? You would take a wild species, say a wolf that hunts caribou by long pursuit and apply selection experimentally to see if you could breed, say, a dogged little wolf that chivies rabbits underground, let's call it a Jack Russell Terrier. Or how about an adorable fluffy pet wolf called, for the sake of argument, a Pekingese? Or a heavy-set, thick-coated wolf, strong enough to carry a cask of brandy that thrives in alpine passes and might be named after one of them, the St. Bernard? Behe has to predict that you'd wait till hell freezes over or the necessary mutations would not be forthcoming. Your wolves stubbornly remain unchanged. Dogs are a mathematical impossibility. From Newfies to Yorkies, from Weimaraners to Water Spaniels, from Dalmatians to Dachshunds, as I incredulously close this book, I seem to hear mocking barks and deep baying howls of derision from 500 breeds of dog, everyone descended from a timber wolf, within a time frame so short as to seem, by geological standards, instantaneous. Uh, there, there are wonderful moments like that. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Although, really, the, the balance between um, hostile and laudatory reviews very much um, errs on the side of um, laudatory reviews. I think the two hostile reviews and this draws back to um, this draws back into what you were saying about postmodernist influenced ways of thinking that seem to reject the whole basis of rationality and science. Uh, one of the other hostile reviews is of uh, Lynn Margulies's um, book that she wrote with. Uh, jointly with her son Dorian Sagan, which is also takes this very postmodernist 
um, wordplay-based um, view of of knowledge and sex, and is is as you put it, you call it elite tossings off, <laughs> um, which I think is a good summary. <laughs> It's expect it expects to be taken seriously as a theory, but doesn't do the work of being falsifiable or producing evidence. Which is which is your favorite of your books that you have written, and why? I usually answer that question as the extended phenotype. Uh, it's I suppose the idea of which I'm most proud. Um, it's the only book I've written which is was specifically designed for academic colleagues and is fully referenced in the way that academic books mm -hmm. are. Uh, but um, I, I'm pretty fond of all of them, actually. I, I don't disown any of them mm -hmm. after quite a lot of years. Um, Climbing Mount Improbable, I think, is the most underrated in the sense that it's the one that sold the least number of copies, and I, I'm really pretty pleased with that one as well. Um, but um, as I say, I, I wouldn't disown any of them. Well, I'm not surprised. They have hugely enriched my life. Richard, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an honour. It's been a real pleasure for me. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.